so this week uh, I was um, praying. We have a staff meeting every Tuesday, and uh, we were praying and worshiping together. And I felt like God say this, um, and really, and I shared it with the staff team because really, I think it's to us, the staff team. Um, but uh, I want to let you in on it as well because <laughs> uh, it might be for you as well. It's very simple. Um, and it's just that I felt God saying, uh, you've lost sight of Jesus. Not a nice thing to hear, um, particularly when you know it's true. I want to share that with you because that's what I feel God is encouraging us all to do, is to come back to him. Uh, and he's always open with his arms ready to receive us. Uh, but I thought it would be good to let you know that uh, for full disclosure. Um, and uh, I was just reminded of it as we were worshipping today. Um, so, there we go. We're coming back to Jesus. As we always are, aren't we? In some senses. We're always trying to come back to him. Uh, but he's always there, ready to receive us. So, enough of that. thought I'd let you know. Um, but... Here we have arrived, for those of you who have not been here before or not been here for a bit, we've arrived at the end of Colossians, which is very sad because it's one of my favourite of the letters. Uh, and we are into the ethical meat of the letter. And then next week we'll be into Advent because Christmas is coming. I know. Have you bought any presents yet? Um, but anyway, this is uh, the ethical meat, as I said last week, of the letter. And Jesus is at the heart of Christian ethics, as he is at the heart of Christian doctrine. Because Christians have, in some sort of mystical, strange way, been included in Jesus' death and in Jesus' resurrection, and in so doing have died with him and have risen to something completely new and different. It's why those who look to Jesus are described throughout the New Testament in final terms. We are now new creations. We are not old creations trying to become new. We are now new creations. It has happened. It is final. It cannot be reversed. Our nature has been fundamentally changed. And so, says Paul, because of this and in light of this, be who you now are. That is the heart of his ethical teaching. Not what you used to be and never will be again. Put on the new self. Kill off the old one because it's in fact dead already. So, where all non-Christian methods for uh, self-improvement tend to focus on us, think differently, behave differently, feel differently, Christianity's method for change is focused entirely on him, Jesus, and what he's done. And what we have to do, therefore, in light of that, is believe him, worship him, and receive him. Or, in Paul's language here, put him on. And as we ended uh, last week, Paul's instruction to us, uh, the middle of chapter 3, is above all virtues, all other virtues, put on love. And now he moves on to, and now put on peace. So let me read from chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
So we'll carry on in a little bit. But first of all, we are all in this together. The new self we have been given by Jesus is not just an individualistic one. It is also a corporate one. And the New Testament really knows nothing of solitary religion. Instead, the idea that we will all be working out our Christian life in the context of community is just a given. Now, this does present particularly difficult uh, challenges to us in our context. Because in our modern urban existence, it is, of course, difficult to say that community is the norm. In fact, we can go through days and days and days without having a proper conversation with anyone apart from maybe Siri. That was a very kind laugh and not a very good joke. (laughs) Thank you. And of course, in many um, cases, in a city like LA, even if we do have relationships, quite often they are, to use the word of our day, quid pro quo relationships. (laughs) They are transactional. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. And therefore, it's hard to say that love or selflessness is really at their heart. But even if we do have loving, kind relationships, we've managed to form those in this uh, dislocated city that we live in. They are always, of course, still going to be broken. They're still going to be difficult because they involve broken and difficult people like me and like you, mainly you. So sustaining them, of course, makes for a costly and often painful experience. So for all these reasons, and for many more, the idea of throwing ourselves into Christian community does not come easily or naturally. However, this does not take away from the fact that our new identities are definitively corporate ones. And living lives that neither acknowledges that nor resembles what we have now become is not going to be good for any of us. So, can I encourage us all, rather than trying to fight what we now are, Let us simply give in to it. Put on your new self as fully as you possibly can. So as Paul continues, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are all called to peace. Now, the peace he is talking about is neither a sort of inner individualistic sense of zen in our mind and hearts, but nor is it uh, the outward appearance of no hostility when beneath the surface everything is raging. Like, I look at you, I'm smiling at you, I want to stab you in the eyes with a fork, but I can't because I'm a Christian, so I'm just going to go, yeah, we're fine, fine, absolutely fine. It's neither of those things. Instead, and just so you know, I was brought up in Britain, And we uh, are not allowed um, by edict from the Queen to talk about our emotions ever. Uh, It's just against the law. And so, uh, therefore, um, my modus operandi for much of my life has been, I can't actually feel the things I'm feeling. I can't actually express the things I'm feeling. Because you shouldn't. You shouldn't. And unfortunately, for many of us, that has been sort of co-opted in the Christian experience as well. Now... There are healthy expressions of our emotions and there are unhealthy expressions of our emotions. Just expressing them is not necessarily healthy. However, what Paul is going on about, about peace here, is neither holding everything back and pretending everything's fine, nor existing in this sort of zen-like place just in our minds, but it is the peace of Christ ruling our hearts. And by that he means that the peace that we experience as Christians is of such depth 
that it infiltrates so much of ourselves that the relationships that we have with other people in this thing called church are to resemble, are to be refereed by a peace that looks like the peace that we experience with Jesus. And so it is a peace that acknowledges all the good, all the bad, and all the ugly, but nevertheless chooses forgiveness over resentment, love over judgment, and humility over pride. And it's not a peace that we create in ourselves of our own strength, but it is a peace given to us by Jesus dying on a cross and resurrecting to new life and giving us our new lives, which involve his peace. And so it's one which destroys all barriers. Every single barrier. Slave and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, all barriers destroyed by Jesus. Which is, of course, not to say that we sweep grievances under the carpet or that we don't instruct people on how to actually live as proper Christians. As he goes on to say, we let the message of Christ dwell in our hearts richly so that we may teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. But without the peace of Jesus in our hearts, our community will not thrive. Now, at the time, uh, Paul is writing during what is known as Pax Romana, which literally means Roman peace. And it is inaugurated, this Pax Romana, by um, Augustus a few years earlier. And the reason for inaugurating it is because, on one level, all the surrounding nations have kind of been subdued by um, Roman military force. But also, what Augustus has realized is, number one, Wars cost money. Number two, wars mean people die. Which means, number three, wars are not that great because we need money and we need people to do other things like establish good legal systems or build aqueducts or um, discover spices or I don't know what else they did. Those sorts of things. And so he says, hey, let's stop having wars, shall we? And everyone kind of goes, yeah, okay. And they stop having wars, and what happens is Rome thrives. It's like the golden age for 200 years. It's not without fighting. There's a few skirmishes here and there, but compared to the years before and the years after, Rome thrives. Economically, it thrives. In politically, it thrives. It extends its boundaries uh, all over the known world. And it's hard not to believe that Paul has all of this in mind when he's talking about Christians living at peace with one another. This is not his attack on Pax Romana. Rather, he's taking Pax Romana and then he is making it cosmic. Let's call it Pax Christiana, Christian peace. Where, when everyone lives under the peace that Jesus has bought for us, Everyone thrives. But not just politically and economically like in Rome, but socially, spiritually, and emotionally too. And the contrast, of course, is that Pax Romana was kind of initiated and governed by the power of Rome, whereas Pax Christianity, Christiana is initiated and governed by the love, not the power of Jesus, the self-giving, sacrificial love. Good. 
So that's the first bit. Let's move on to the fun second part. Instructions for Christian households. There are a few of these in uh, the New Testament, as there were in Jewish codes and Roman codes as well. And this is uh, Paul's version in Colossians. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is fair and right, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So, in Paul's first century context, what we have here is three relationships with a power imbalance at their heart. On the one hand, there is the parties with uh, all or most of the power, husbands, parents, and masters. And on the other hand, there are the ones with little or none of the power, wives, children, and slaves. Paul's concern, therefore, is how these unbalanced relationships should now be lived out in the, lives of, in the light of all of us, wives, children, and slaves, as well as husbands, parents, and masters, living under the entirely balanced force of one unique and sole authority and power, namely King Jesus. Now, the time I have to talk about this is not enough. We could spend a whole talk, and I think we probably will, going through just each one of these things at some point. So I'm aware that this is going to be a bit of a glossing over, which is not good. Nevertheless, I think it's important to talk about this stuff. So let us start with wives and husbands. Mm. Now, it is vital that we read this passage in the light of two important other Pauline passages. The first is Galatians 3 which is actually echoed earlier in Colossians, Galatians 3.28 specifically. And it famously states this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And as I said, it has an echo in chapter 3, verse 11 of this book. Now, neither of these are exhaustive lists, but importantly, what they are is theological statements. These are Paul describing the kingdom of God and what it looks like in broad, universal, idealistic form, terms. You see, for Paul, there is always this kind of fluid tension which is stretched in various different ways throughout his writing between ideals and pragmatics. There are the high theological statements which rule over everything else, and then there are the low situational ethics which are context-specific. With that in mind, let us consider the Pauline passage, Ephesians 5, which is the second one we need to look at, which actually sheds some light on Colossians 3 and is really the expounding of Colossians 3. So this is Ephesians 5, and it says this, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So the context, verse 21, let me just read it to you again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The context, verse 21, is mutual submission. Everyone is submitting to everyone. Husbands are submitting to wives and wives are submitting to husbands. So instructing wives here in Colossians 3 to submit to husbands is actually all that Paul is asking is simply for wives to do what husbands are also doing to them. Submitting. You see, submission is not the submission of a slave or a doormat. As we've already said, the equality of women and men before God cannot be retracted. So no one is being treated like anything other than the precious image of God that he or she is. Paul would have absolutely no time for either party being threatened or beaten or downtrodden or ignored or silenced or treated as anything other than the precious, important child of the living God that they are. Rather, Paul is encouraging wives specifically not to resent their husbands. Given the huge power imbalance that the marriage would be operating under, Paul is saying to the weaker party, nevertheless, choose self-giving love of your husband. Put him first, just as you do God. Now, this, of course, is a huge risk. but it is the risk at the heart of every actual meaningful relationship. When we love truly, there is no guarantee that that love will be reciprocated. When we put someone else first, there is no guarantee that that trust will not be abused. And yet, knowing all this, Paul nevertheless says to all of us, including wives, including husbands, submit to one another. Submit not to the power that they could wield over you, but submit to giving of your own selfless love. Big risk, but one that is at least mitigated to a large degree by the following line, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. So both parties are called to mutual submission, but it's only the husbands, lucky husbands, lucky us, it's only us who get a double command, not just submit, but also love. And I think this can only be understood in the light of the power imbalance. The onus on husbands is much greater because they are the ones with the power to really mess it up. That's not the case so much now, but it was then. So they need to be checked twice. In a context when wives were the property of their husbands, when many husbands would only have sex with their wives in order to procreate, and then they would have concubines and slaves for all their other sexual desires, what Paul is saying is startlingly revolutionary. Husbands, give up your power over your wives, just as Jesus gave up all his power for the sake of the world. And like him, husbands love selflessly, sacrificially, and without demands. This is Paul's antidote to power being lorded over one another. When both parties put the other one first, both win. As I say in my excellent marriage talk, I only have one marriage talk. I'm also available for bar mitzvahs, (laughs) christenings, and funerals. 
I'm not available for bar mitzvahs. It's a mistake to put your desires, goals, and talents before those of your spouse. Instead, each of us should do all we can to make sure the other one thrives and achieves all that they want from life. It's a good rule just in general for life, actually. At our, um, at our wedding, Hannah and my wedding, uh, we, had, we chose two readings. Uh, one uh, was about God's love, and one was about God's forgiveness. They were lovely. And part of the reason we chose those was because most of the people who were coming were not Christians and didn't come to church, and quite a lot of them were feminists. I know. Uh, and they were in there, and we wanted to represent what uh, we felt God was like and what, God, um, uh, what we'd met in God, of a God of love and a God of forgiveness and a God who doesn't treat us uh, necessarily as we might um, think he does. So we'd chosen these readings very specifically, and it was all going great. And then uh, the guy uh, who was doing the sermon, that came about. And he moved right down to stand right in front of us. And then he said, um, those were nice readings but I have another one, which was strange. And then he proceeded to read from Ephesians without that first verse and just started, wives, submit to your husbands. And he spent about 25 minutes talking about how wives need to submit to their husbands. And he didn't really talk about me at all, which as a highly self-related person, I found it very offensive. <laughs> It was, um, it was quite difficult for us, and we sort of replayed it back in our minds. And should we have just stood up and said, no, no, everyone, no. I think he had our best intentions at heart. I think if we, did, if we, had the same, if we went around the same thing again, I don't know. We, we might ask someone else to marry us. <laughs> but the point, seriously, is this. is that in order for us to enjoy the depth of relationship that God has ordained for us, and just as importantly, to exhibit to the world what a loving marriage relationship actually should look like, we need to take no prisoners in showing and preaching what that looks like, which is mutual submission. It is no party having power over the other. It is no party lording it over another. It is no party being silenced and squished and made into something small. It is, like Jesus, giving up of ourselves for the sake of the other. The divorce rate amongst Christians is just as high as anyone else. So let us not be naive. This is a battle and we need to preach the truth, and we need to exhibit the truth of love, Jesus-like love for one another. Slaves and masters. This is probably the most tricky part of these um, three different relationship spheres to navigate. Paul, of course, does not push for the abolition of slavery. But that does not, therefore, mean that he doesn't think that slavery should be abolished. Indeed, in the picture he paints of human equality in God's kingdom, there are, which have actually just happened a few verses earlier, he includes everyone, barbarians and Scythians, slaves and free. And so it's very hard to think, oh, he might just squeeze in a little bit of slavery in the side door. 
It is, though, very important that we do not read modern slavery into ancient slavery. Most importantly, in Paul's time, race would have had nothing to do with whether one was a slave or not. Also, slaves were regularly freed. They were given all the rights of freedmen when, they were done, when that was done. And many slaves were treated much more like employees. They were given cattle to graze. Uh, often, when they were freed, they would choose to stay within the household and carry on working because it had been an experience, really, of employment as opposed to slavery. However, let us not detract from the point. Slavery is still slavery. The ownership of one person by another has no place in the kingdom of God. But it does seem that Paul is at his most pragmatic here. While he gives all the reasons why slavery should of course be abolished, without pushing the envelope, he chooses instead to try to disrobe the power of the institution from within. Slaves are to work diligently and respectfully, not because of their masters, but because of the Lord. They have only one authority, and his name is Jesus, so they honor him by doing their work, knowing he, unlike all earthly masters, is always just and fair, always rewards them, will not forget them, and looks after them in his righteous right hand. But it is in the following statement to masters that Paul gets all revolutionary again. Masters, like slaves, are to, in the light of Jesus, abdicate their power. It is not their own, and so their behavior is to not be ruled by themselves, by, but under the supreme authority of Jesus in heaven. It is hard to beat a slave when you are being ruled by the Jesus whose body was beaten for the sake of the world. It is hard not to forgive a slave when you are being ruled by the Jesus who, whilst we were still his enemies, tying him up to a cross, abandoning him, and putting him to a shameful death, still nevertheless said to all of us, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Children and fathers, with which we will end. Now, in addressing children as members of the church in their own right and in giving them responsibilities and rights, Paul is again allowing the gospel to break new ground. What he is, in effect, saying is, you, whoever you are, as a child, when you were a child, you were important. You were as important as your siblings. You were as important as your parents. You were seen by God. You were valued by God. You were given dignity and position in his kingdom. You were not simply an inconvenience, and we're not all just waiting until you become an adult and then you're useful. You, as a child, were his and were important. It's quite a thing to believe that. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. In two sentences, Paul has, in essence, said what thousands and thousands of parenting books often fail to actually communicate. 
because sometimes we overemphasize the importance of uh, the second bit, what fathers need to do, because you know we mustn't spoil the child. And sometimes we overemphasize the first bit, the rights of the child, and let them run free, wandering over all the rights of everyone else. Because look at poor Tommy. He's, so, I mean, he's different to everyone else. He really should be able to do whatever he likes because he's, he's a special one. The truth is we need both. Children need discipline and so do parents. Now, the word for father can mean both sexes, but almost certainly Paul is directing here to fathers. Again, he is not doing this because he believes fathers are any more important or have authority or should be leading the way in which their children are brought up. He's saying it because fathers have the power, and having the power, he knows that they have, they have within them what it takes to either make or break their children, and so he is going straight for the source. But of course... In our current context, depending where and when you grew up, it may well be that your mother was the influence over you. Really, she had the power. That was certainly the case for me. My mum did everything. She was a superwoman. She did all the parenting and everything else, as far as I can tell. So it's absolutely legitimate for us to add mothers into the mix. But what Paul calls both parents to do is not to embitter their children. The word means to arouse in a sort of negative sense, to provoke them. He's referring to nagging or belittling a child because when parents do that, they are doing that as they would if they slander anyone to God. It's like blasphemy. We are belittling not just the child, but belittling the image of God, the icon of God, the one who is his representative on earth, and therefore we are belittling God, a sure sign of insecurity on the part of the parent. At its heart, it is the refusal to allow children to be people in their own right instead of carbon copies of their parents or their parents' fantasy of what their children might be, might be like. From time to time, our um, kids play the classic game, what would you like to be when you grow up? I'm much better now at not taking this as seriously as I used to. But honestly, such are my neuroses and insecurities. It used to make me very anxious when I heard them starting to play it. And often it was in the car, and I'd be driving. And as they were asking each other, what do you want to be when you grow up? I find myself gripping the steering wheel tighter and tighter and saying, say doctor, say doctor, say doctor. <laughs> and then one of them goes, acrobat. A Seriously? <laughs> acrobat? She doesn't even like going upside down. She wants to be an acrobat. It was when our youngest said that when she grows up, she wants to be a dog, that I finally thought, I, I think I'm taking this too seriously. But, and this is the serious point, because not one person in this room will not have received some sort of ungodly expectations handed down to them from their parents. And those will range from you must be extraordinary to you'll never amount to anything. And both for Paul and everything in between actually are examples of how parents embitter their children. It leaves children, as Paul says, discouraged. Hearing both verbally or non-verbally that you are not much of any value or that you haven't really amounted to anything or you're not really pleasing to me leaves children with two options. Either they agree with you 
And yes, I am not much of, of much value, which turns to self-hatred. Or they overreact and say, I will prove that I am of much value, which tends to lead to either anxious or boastful self-importance. Instead, says Paul, the parent's duty is this. In very simple terms, are you ready for the New Testament's advice to parents? Your parents, my parents, everyone's parents, those of us in the room who are parents, here it is. Live out the gospel for your children. Assure that your children are loved and accepted and valued for who they are. Not for who they ought to be. Not for who they should have been. Not for who they could have been if only they'd just tried harder, but for who they are. A couple last two stories. I remember being at university and... Um, I didn't like Christians, I wasn't a Christian, and I particularly didn't like Christians. Uh, but there was one, apart from one, and he was, he was just the nicest guy ever. And I used to um, think there's something about you, it better not be your Christianity, because I didn't want to become a Christian. Uh, but there was something about him. And then I met his parents, and I thought, well, that's it, isn't it? Because they did this. They clearly said, we love you for who you are. No expectations. And it meant he was totally free. And I thought to myself, if I ever become a parent, I'm going to be like that. I'm going to love my children for who they are. How then horribly exposing of my actual heart is a prepubescent hormonal daughter right now? Because what we do is I say, you need to obey me. And she says, why? And I find myself going, because I'm your father. <laughs> and so continues the power hierarchy. Do it because I have power over you. Other variations. Obey me or I won't love you. Which is actually not a love at all. Instead, when parents love their children in the way that Jesus loves us, and let's remember, Jesus has all the power in the universe to try and command us to do what he wants us to do, but he chooses not to, instead just giving up his life for us for love. Big risk. Big risk on his part. But when we love our children... We give them the opportunity to obey us as a loving response. As opposed to as a, as a result of control or fear or because of the existence of some sort of hierarchical power structure. This is what Paul says is the obedience that is pleasing to the Lord. Not because he wants good, well-behaved little children who are seen rather than heard. Not causing a fuss and being out in the background but because he wants all of us, including children, to experience the selfless, self-giving love that actually is our true nature because of what Jesus has done.